Proximity breeds perspective because it's easy for us to judge others and make assumptions from afar, whether it be someone famous, an acquaintance, someone from a different culture or social class, whether it's a classmate, coworker, church member, or that person that likes that sports team, and the list can go on. It's much more easy and it's much more comfortable for us to make assumptions about other people. But it's a much more difficult work to really get to know someone else. It requires you getting close to them. It requires opening yourself up to listen to them and also for you to be fully known to them. And the closer you get to them, the better you know the real them. Which is why, young people, it is important for you to really date well over a long period of time to get to know who you're considering to marry. Just a little plug for the teenagers, which, just another side plug. Teenagers, we're not meeting together for youth group tonight. You are going to be spending tonight with your mothers, so there you go. But proximity breeds perspective. And this is the key to knowing Jesus of Nazareth. It's by getting in close proximity with him. Because whether it be a dating relationship, marriage, an existing friendship, befriending someone new, or engaging with someone of a different background from you, we enter into greater proximity with them to gain a greater perspective of who they are so we can love them deeper and better. And that is often messy, but the back end of it is beautiful. And there are so many people that have made so many assumptions about Jesus of Nazareth without doing the hard work of getting close to him. Because remember, proximity breeds perspective. Within the broader global church, and I think we would be naive to think that possibly even some of us in this room, some of us boldly declare that we know Jesus of Nazareth and that we love him, but yet our foundation of our knowledge and love for Jesus is based solely on what others say about Jesus or what we read on social media, how movies, TV shows portray him, or what our politicians believe about Jesus. But it is a very hard work for us to get to know who Jesus really is. And so for the next few weeks, Nathan Lenscher and myself will be tag-teaming over the next few weeks, talking about Jesus and his miracles. Or as the slide before this one said, who is Jesus? Not who that theologian or pastor says Jesus is or what the podcast says about Jesus or what the politician says about Jesus or what that Facebook post says about Jesus, but we are going to open up the very word of God to look for Jesus in the midst of this word. Because as Jesus declared that you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in the scriptures, and yet they testify about Jesus, but yet you are not willing to come to Jesus so that you may have life. Life is found in Jesus. And so as we seek to gain better perspective of who Jesus is and we get in close proximity with him, we will then be able to understand in the coming weeks why Jesus performed miracles. 
We get to more understand his character and who he is. And we begin to read the Gospels with a fuller understanding of who he is and what he means to us. And what he means to the world. And so with the passage that Hannah read this morning, we're going to dissect a little bit of this passage. Discover how Jesus defines himself in this passage what his purpose is, and then we're gonna look a little bit and tee off the next series and explain a little bit of what miracles are and what their purpose are. So, the first question we have to ask, and it's a good question, who does Jesus say he is? Who does he say he is? And I'm going to put a little asterisk here because this is a very big question. And you might leave today thinking, well, he didn't talk about this or this or this or this. Hang tight. The next few weeks, we will probably address those things. Today's just going to be a 30,000-foot view. We're not going to get super specific. But what we discussed this morning is key as we move forward to gaining perspective with Jesus. So, The first thing we're going to talk about that Jesus talks about here is that Jesus is the son of Yahweh, the son of the creator God. And this statement by Jesus is not one that he declared lightly or without thought. By Jesus declaring that God or Yahweh was his father, he implied that he was cut from the same divine fabric as the perfect creator God. That is why they were so upset in verse 18, all the more trying to kill him because he was calling God his own father and making himself equal to God. And this is foundational for us as followers of Jesus to be able to wrap our minds around because this is what upset the religious elite And this is ultimately for us as followers of Jesus. This is one of the cornerstone things. If you don't cling tight to any doctrine, this is one of them. Because Yahweh, the unapproachable God, the one who created the cosmos, the only one who is pure and holy and righteous and whose presence had to be contained in the holy of holies. How could that God have offspring? How could that God have flesh and bone and dwell amongst his fallen creation? And the people of this day could not possibly compute the fact that Yahweh could have offspring. They couldn't compute, and this just wasn't something they were just going to take Jesus' words for. Because as Jesus said, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. But then he goes on to say, there is another who testifies about me. And I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. So whose testimony is he talking about? First, he addresses John the Baptist by saying, you sent messengers to John and he testified to the truth, which that was John's mission prophesied in Malachi that there would be one who is sent as a messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. And that John the Baptist came testifying that there's one who is going to come that whose sandals I am not unworthy to tie. And there is one that is going to come. And as he saw Jesus approach him, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
and that John's testimony was one pointing towards Jesus and his divinity. But I'd like to say that there's a testimony that is far stronger than John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, this is as Jesus was being baptized and as he comes up out of the water, there seems to be this voice from heaven, as Matthew says. There's a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, heaven is declaring that this is the son of God with whom he is well pleased. Then later on in the same gospel of Matthew, the same voice also testified, while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a loud voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. As Jesus was being transfixed, or transfigured, but as he was being transfigured, the same voice, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And this is a testimony that Jesus carried throughout his ministry, that he is the son of God. And to be cut from the same divine fabric that God is. And if that is true, then it must mean one of two things. Number one, Jesus really is the son of God. He's our long-awaited redeemer and Messiah. Or option two, Jesus is crazy and shouldn't be trusted. There's no option three or option four. Either Jesus really is the son of God or he's crazy and can't be trusted. Or as Watchman Nee said, and I know the font's really small, I'll read it for you. Watchman Nee in his book, Normal Christian Faith, said, First, if he claims to be God and yet in fact is not, he has to be a madman or a lunatic. Second, if he is neither God nor a lunatic, he has to be a liar, deceiving others by his lie. Third, if he is neither of these, he must be God. You can only choose one of the three possibilities. If you do not believe that he is God, you have to consider him a madman. If you cannot take him for either of the two, you have to take him for a liar. There is no need for us to prove if Jesus of Nazareth is God or not. All we have to do is find out if he is a liar or a lunatic. If he is neither, he must be the son of God. So church family, is Jesus a lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he God? And each of us must answer this question honestly as we sit before the Lord. We must do the hard work of diving into scripture and praying and seeking to find Jesus for who he actually is, not based on what others say about him. Don't base your belief about Jesus on a blog post or a social media post or any other written source. You must go directly to the word of God, sit before the throne room of God, and to ask these questions and to let God and to let scripture inform what you believe about Jesus. 
And we all must gain close proximity to Jesus to be able to understand who he is. And I would argue the closer you get to Jesus, the more you see his divinity. So the first thing that this text in John chapter 5 explains is that Jesus is the Son of God. And then second, that Jesus is fully surrendered to the Father. So in his divinity, Jesus chose submission. In his holiness, he chose being a servant. So let's read verses 19 to 20 of John chapter 5 once more. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. And he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Jesus, being fully God, is simultaneously fully human. And in his humanness, he chose obedience to the Father. John chapter 1, verse 1 and 14 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that that Word that was cut from the fabric of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. That as we must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, we must also believe that Jesus, as he was on earth, is also fully human. That he walked ways that we walked. And in his divinity and in his humanness, he fully surrendered, was in tune with, and obeyed the Father can't stress this enough. Jesus, the Son of God, chose willing submission to the Father and to his ways. And you don't have to believe me because from the mouth of Jesus, he talks of his surrender to the will of the Father often. John 4.34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, verse 26 and 29. I'm going to fly through these. If you're a note taker, I'm frustrating you, and I'm so sorry. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true. And what I've heard from him, these things I will tell the world. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. John 10, verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. John 12, verses 49 to 50. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life, so the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. We're almost there, I promise. John 14, 30 to 31. I will not talk with you much longer, because the ruler of the world is coming. Catch this. He has no power over me. 
on the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as the Father commanded me. John 15, 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And as Jesus in the garden was praying, as he knew what was before him, Luke twenty two forty two says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. From the mouth of Jesus, he chose submission to the Father. Being fully God, but also fully human, he chose the will of the Father. Or as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, 14 to 15, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 5, 7 to 8, during his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And as Hebrews 12, 2 ends, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. That throughout Jesus' entire life, he chose willing submission to the Father, to his leading, to what he was speaking, to where he was sending him to go. Jesus was fully obedient to the Father. Now, what does that mean? Why does Jesus' surrender to his Father's will matter? Because Jesus ultimately, through his life and his sacrifice on the cross, through his divinity and willing obedience, he accomplished what he came to accomplish to bring us eternal salvation, forgiveness of sins, and to remove the penalty of sin for whosoever would choose to submit themselves to the Father. And it's vital that we come to this place as followers of Jesus to have faith that Jesus is fully human and fully God. And I understand that this is a concept that is really hard for the human mind to wrap around. But as we have faith in who Jesus says he is and who he has demonstrated himself to be, that these two foundational pieces are things that we can cling to in faith, knowing that Jesus is who he said he is. And there's obviously a lot more that we could dive into when it comes to the character of Jesus. And my prayer is that as we go throughout this series, and hopefully throughout your life, that you will gain such close proximity to Jesus, that you will gain a greater perspective of who he really is. And that you'll begin to understand and fall more in love with Jesus and understand his character and his being, and that he will make himself so real to you in such a personal and a real way. Because like we said, proximity breeds perspective. And so my prayer is that you gain greater perspective of who he really is. But let's shift gears just a little bit because in our upcoming series, we're going to talk about Jesus and his miracles. And it's often for us to 
head into reading these miracles of Jesus and not understand why he did them, how he did them. And it's a very real temptation for us to be able to think that maybe Jesus performed that miracle for that person and how come he didn't give that miracle to me or whatever the case might be. Sometimes we can head into Jesus's miracles with the wrong perspective. And so I just want to lay out a brief understanding of miracles, why God ordains particular miracles, and what Jesus' miracles actually mean. According to Merriam-Webster, their definition of a miracle is an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. An extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. So the first thing I want to talk about this morning is that miracles are not a New Testament-only phenomenon. That Jesus was not the first person to ever perform a miracle or the first person to ever be there to witness a miracle. Yahweh did not decide to unleash miracles once his son was born. And behind me there's a list of hopefully some some miracles that have been performed throughout the Old Testament. I won't read all of them, but just a few. There were the 10 plagues in Exodus 7 through 12, turning water to blood, the frogs, gnats, swarm of flies, death of livestock, and the list goes on. Uh, Parting the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. Uh, Aaron's rod budded in number 17. Balaam's donkey talks in Numbers 22. That's a hit in youth group, by the way. The walls of Jericho falling in Joshua chapter 6. The sun and moon standing still in Joshua 10. Uh, The widow's son was raised from the dead in 1 Kings 17. The sacrifice was consumed by fire from heaven in 1 Kings 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered from the fire in Daniel chapter 3. And Jonah was swallowed by and spit out by a whale in Jonah chapter 1 through 2. And there's obviously more. But in these moments, and in the others that I didn't mention, God opened up the gates of heaven and chose to intervene in this side of earth to intervene with his power and healing. And along with these moments of great breakthrough through these miracles, there are just as many, or if not more, instances of God not miraculously breaking through to heal, to save or deliver. That there are times that we pray and cry out for a miracle, and yet the miracle doesn't come this side of eternity. And that leads to one of the greatest questions that we might not ever have answered this sign of eternity. And it's a question that many of us, and myself included, have asked in some deep and dark places in my life. And the question is this, why does God choose to heal, save, deliver, or move on behalf of some, but not others. Because there might be some people around you or you see their social media posts that God allows a miracle in their life or in a relative's life or a friend's life, but then you have a relative or a friend or maybe even yourself that you have been crying out for a miracle, praying for a miracle, and God doesn't move. God doesn't provide this big miracle over your life. And if you've asked this question, you're not alone. Not just in this room, but throughout 
human history. And there's a couple Psalms that are, are found within our Bible that they actually address this very question of how God could allow this person to get a miracle and me to seemingly be here and God's not moving. Psalm chapter 10, verse one, we don't know the author, but he says this, Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Have you ever cried out that prayer? Psalm chapter 13, verses one through three, this is from David. He says this, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me? Agony in my mind every day. How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me an answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. Or the familiar psalm that David wrote and Jesus quoted, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And instead of in this moment for me to give uh, a brief, in-depth theological response to why God doesn't give miracles to some and acts on behalf of others, I just want to pause and say that those moments, it hurts. It's so hard when God does miracles around you and it seems like God doesn't do miracles for you. And I'm not going to try to offer a catchy quote to somehow slap a band-aid on your very real exist or your very real experience. I want to stand here to just say I'm with you. I've prayed prayers of deliverance and healing and breakthrough and salvation and reconciliation, and there is no miracle. And I know in those moments it hurts. And you don't know why. And I'm with you on not fully understanding why the miracle comes to this person but doesn't to that. I'm with you. And yet I do want to encourage us with this. Even if the miracle doesn't come your way, we serve a God who is faithful. And if we take the time, he has done miraculous things in, around and through us. Your very existence is a miracle. The planet we live on is a miracle. I could get into all the science, and Nathan could probably do that in weeks coming up since that's more of his background and forte. But to just imagine your body working the way that it does is literally a miracle. Like one little thing goes wrong or this planet that we live on, if the gravity were this much stronger, or if our, our proximity to the sun was this off, that our existence here on this earth is a miracle. And if you do the hard work, and I know it's hard, but if we do the hard work of examining what God has done in through, around us, throughout our lives, 
we will be able to see the hand of God, maybe not in the fire coming down from heaven kind of way or the parting the Red Sea kind of way, but if we do the hard work of examining our lives and seeing how God has moved, we will be able to see the hand of God in your life. But it's a hard work. And like we said, proximity breeds perspective. And the closer that we get to Jesus, the more we, be, we will be able to see his hand through our lives. And so as we think about the motive of why miracles happen, I just want to pause real quick just to give a little definition of why Jesus performed miracles. So Jesus' miracles and all miracles that are ordained by God are the temporary inbreaking of heaven to earth, revealing the character of God and foreshadows what is to come. His miracles are the temporary inbreaking of heaven to earth, and it reveals who God is and it foreshadows what's to come. And that by Jesus appearing, Jesus is the embodiment of heaven breaking through to earth. Jesus becoming flesh is a miracle. And in full submission to the Father and his leading, the divine broke through the ordinary. And in miracles, heaven touches earth. Healing, deliverance, nature being altered, death turned to life. All of those things, though it does show heaven here on earth, those things are just temporary. But they're meant to point towards the eternal. And it's all meant for us to look forward to the future where heaven does meet earth. There's the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem to come where he will wipe away every tear from your eye and there will be no more sickness or mourning or death. But when a miracle happens, it should fix our eyes not on the act, but on the giver of it. Because like I said, Jesus' miracles weren't meant to be eternal. His healings were not a guarantee that that individual would never get sick again. Jesus calming the storm was not a once and for all end to storms forever. Jesus delivering demons did not eradicate demon possession for the rest of human history. And Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead meant that, guess what? He had to die again. Like, what a bummer. Dude didn't just die once, he died twice. I bet he's got extra crowns in heaven just because of that. But miracles in this here and not yet reality of the kingdom, they are temporary. But that doesn't mean that they are meaningless, serve no purpose, or aren't worth it. Because remember, miracles are demonstrations of divine proportions intended for all who receive, witness, or hear about the miracle to have a clear revelation of God's character and for all to experience a portion of what heaven meeting earth looks like. That these miracles, though temporary, serve a purpose and it is to point us towards God. Because we can often get caught up in the event of the miracle. We can get caught up in the parting of the Red Seas or the healing or God showing up in some miraculous way. We can get fixated on the thing so much so that we miss out on the hand of God in the midst of it. 
And Jesus' miracles were not a party trick for us as followers of his to be like, oh yeah, by the way, my God could do this or that. But we experience these miracles, we look at the miracles within scripture, and our question isn't, why can't God do that for me so I can get a cool little trick? But it's actually for us to open our eyes and see, God, what does this miracle show about you? What is it about your character and your kingdom that this miracle reveals? And that even in the midst of the temporary, we can see heaven meeting earth and look forward to the day when that fully comes, when heaven will meet earth, when God will redeem and restore all of creation. Sin will be no more. Death will be no more and we will forever be walking in the miracle that is humanity with their God. And it shows that Jesus has dominion over all. Even in the temporary, when Jesus heals someone, like if you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about my grandpa or pa. He was getting prepared to go into surgery, had cancer the size of a softball. All the lying men gathered around him. I was still pretty young, so I didn't understand all that was going on. But we laid our hands on him and we prayed over him. We prayed healing, whether in this life or the life to come. Next day goes in for surgery and the doctors, they do all of their examinations and they say, why is he here? Like, well, he has cancer. He has a procedure. And they showed the pictures and there is no cancer in his body. God had chosen to miraculously heal my grandpa in the temporary moment. But when God decided to heal him, or when Naaman in the Old Testament was cured of leprosy, those things display God's dominion over sickness, disease, and cancer, that those things do not have the final say. when Jesus calms the storm and curses the fig tree, or when God speaks to a whale to swallow up a human being and spit him back out onto the shore, that displays God's dominion over his very creation. When Jesus casts out demons, that displays God's power over Satan and evil. Because once again, as I read in the Gospel of John, that when Jesus talked about doing the will of the Father, He said in John 14, verse 30, that I will not talk with you much longer because the ruler of the world is coming and he has no power over me. That Jesus, through casting out demons, is a reminder to the forces of evil that are at play that they do not have the final say, that their ways ultimately will bow before the feet of Jesus. And that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, or when the widow's son was raised from the dead, or as Jesus raised from the dead, those things displayed God's power over death. That, oh, death, where is your sting? And as we head into this new teaching series that we've entitled, Who is Jesus?, My prayer for us is that as we would have eyes to see Jesus clearly, ears to hear what he says, 
and a heart that's eager to receive Jesus for all that he is. May we gaze upon him, his miracles, and through our proximity to him, that we would fall more deeply in love with Jesus. That's the goal, is to love Jesus. All the commands are summed up with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to love your neighbor as yourself. And as we dive into this series about who is Jesus, as we dive into God's word and as we look at these miracles, would we not just be in awe of the miracles, but would we be, would we be in awe of the God who works the miracles? So let's pray. Jesus, we, we thank you that when you came, you came as fully God and fully man, that you chose willing obedience to the Father, that willing obedience led to your death, even death on a cross, and that you proved your love for us, and that while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. And that through your ultimate miracle of defeating the sting of death and raising again three days later, that we can look to that miracle and we can have life and have it to the full. And that when it seemed like there was no way, that you ultimately made a way. And God, as we look to your son Jesus and as we look at some of the miracles that he has done, may we not get caught up in the act of the miracle, but may we be able to fix all the more intimately on who you are in the midst of it. God, I pray that you would meet us in such a, an intimate way and that as we gain greater proximity to you, that you would open our eyes to a greater perspective of who you really are because there's so much to know about you and there's so much that we can observe and be able to love you deeper. God, we love you. And we just dedicate our lives to you. And we just pray all these things in your name.